And uh, for our guests who are with us, we invite you, if you haven't already registered your children, to take them to the Welcome Center and register your children there uh, so that they can get to experience kids' community. Good morning, loved ones. Glad to see all of you here. Thankful for your presence and thankful that we get to be together and uh, gather around God's Word. Uh, Thankful uh, for this season that we're in. That means uh, a lot of parties, uh, weddings, as we've seen yesterday with the snows celebrating here, with the Vanderers coming up later this month. There's just uh, a great cause of celebration, but it, it's really around Jesus, and that is what we find ourselves coming back to. He's the one that we keep coming back to who is the reason that our, uh, our, our services and our worship time celebrating His Advent, His coming, are so exciting and full of hope and joy and peace. We have more of those coming. Now, this Wednesday evening's uh, Advent service starts at 7, but before that, it's a sanctuary night. So before that, 6 o'clock in the gym, we have a meal. So some great time for fellowship and to be together. Um, Isn't that part of what we do in this season as well, is eat together and celebrate around the table? So we get to do that from 6 to 7. Then we'll come in here uh, for... Um, the second Advent service, and we'll enjoy that from 7 to 8. We are in our series, Believing God. Stories of faith from the Old Testament. And um, last week, we're, we're coming out of even two out of the last three weeks, where we have gone into some of the harder sections of Scripture exploring the silence of God and, and, and last week even exploring the suffering that we ourselves sometimes experience and how f- lamenting, calling out, crying out to God is an act of faith in this God who we know is loving and powerful and is able to deliver us. And so sometimes in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of what appears to be the silence of God, we find ourselves really struggling. It takes faith to see beyond our suffering into the kind of future that God has prepared for us. It takes great faith to see beyond our suffering. It takes great faith to believe God for restoration. When we find ourselves in suffering, and today in our text, when we find ourselves in exile, whether that's a self-induced hardship or it's an unsolicited suffering, you didn't ask for the sickness, you didn't ask for the hurt in the relationship from your friend or from your spouse, you didn't ask to lose your job, you didn't ask to be in financial struggle. You didn't ask for some of these things to happen, but they've happened to you anyway. And in those moments of hardship, from whatever source, it takes faith in the God of restoration to see a way forward into his glory and into our good that he's prepared for us. I want today to be a message of hope. 
as we are in this season of, re- of being reminded about the coming of Jesus, and as we, we have already sung together, the God who comes to save, wrapped in human weakness to our world he came, carrying our sickness, suffering our shame. That's what we celebrate, and we have such great hope in the God who has, as we said last week, entered into the suffering of this world, had didn't come to a suffering world and then distance himself from it, but entered the suffering itself. And today we see a way forward as we put our hope in restoration that suffering is not the final resting place of God's people. It is oftentimes the place in which God is doing his greatest work for restoration. And today, our story is going to come from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. Specifically, we'll be in there. We'll be reading a lot of this chapter, but let me just tell you a little bit about Ezekiel. Ezekiel was written to the people of God who were already in exile. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel himself was one of those who had been, he was an important official, he was a priest. And he had been carried off into exile. Already the northern tribes called Israel or Samaria or sometimes even Ephraim, they had already been carried off in the 720s. So about 130 to 40 years before this exile had come about. So now it's, it's 597 and there's the first entrance of the Babylonian Empire. They've already been taking over every other known part of the world at that time, the established part of the world, and they've come in and they've taken off the king, Jehoiakim, and a lot of the important and wealthier people. And they've taken them back to Babylon. And Ezekiel was one of those exiles. Ezekiel is then given a calling about four years later in 593. He's given his calling at the beginning of of this book of Ezekiel. And so the priest now is becoming a prophet. And he's speaking into the exiles who are already have been taken away from their land and put in a foreign land with foreign people and foreign gods all around them. And he's speaking to the people who are already in exile and he's delivering a message from God back to those who've been left in Judah. This is a message for all the people. And it's a message that reminds them why they are where they are. What has happened? In fact, in the very first part of the book, one of the great visions that Ezekiel is given from God, God in this vision is seen leaving the temple. His presence departs the temple. And what we know is that for the people of God, the land and the temple... Those were the places where they had, they had staked their claim. That, in fact, had become, in some ways, so important as a symbol that it replaced the presence of God himself and obedience to God himself. And now that people are being taken out of their land, now that, that foreigners are really in control of their land, now they're beginning to go, what's going on here? And the presence of God is seen leaving the temple. But in the middle of the book, as as Ezekiel is delivering messages to the people of God, but he's also delivering messages 
to those nations who've been pummeling God's people. He has a message of hope. And the message coming from Ezekiel is in chapter 36 that I want us to look at today. Now there's several things that he does here in this first part of the chapter. He begins by speaking to creation. He's first speaking to the mountains of Edom, to the southeast of Israel, but then he begins to speak to the mountains of Israel. And we're thinking sometimes, what is God doing speaking to the mountains? Well, he is the God who spoke the mountains into existence. He speaks creation into existence. Going all the way back into Genesis, God is concerned with the whole of creation. And if we recall, every time he creates something and speaks it into existence, he says, ah, and that is good. So he loves the mountains of Israel. And listen to the message that he speaks to the mountains of Israel. But you, mountains of Israel, will produce branches and fruit for my people, Israel, for they will soon come home. I'm concerned for you and will look on you with favor. You will be plowed and sown, and I will cause many people to live on you. Yes, all of Israel. The towns will be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. And later on in verse 11, he says, I will settle people on you as in the past and will make you prosper more than before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. The Lord wants good for the land itself. He wants good for creation itself. Remember Romans chapter 8, verse 22? Paul is talking about how pervasive the the sin of humanity has, has been. It's not just pervasive for individual persons in whom there is sin and rebellion, but the pervasiveness of sin has, has impacted all of creation. In fact, we go back to Genesis once again and we see this, that creation is impacted by the sin of people. In Romans chapter 8, verse 22, Paul says, the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pain of childbirth. And in Ezekiel 36, it's as if God has heard the groaning of the land itself, of creation itself. And it's groaning because of the sin of the people. And this is where the Lord then turns. He turns to Israel's sin, starting in chapter 36, verse 17. He says, I dispersed the people. I dispersed them among the nations. First to Assyria, and now to Babylon. And they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. It's something he talks about in Leviticus as well. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, what did they do? They profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people. You see, their fame had spread for the wrong reasons. 
The people of Judah and the people of Israel had, had, had seen their name spread and the name of Yahweh spread, but it wasn't because the name of Yahweh had been magnified and glorified and made holy and sanctified through them. Instead, it was the opposite. They have profaned my name. They've profaned the land. And this is what he says. They defiled the land, which was their inheritance. They defiled the gift that he gave them. They defiled the trust that he had given to them by shedding people's blood and by worshiping idols. He wanted them to be different. And when we go back to the calling of God's people to the exodus, as he had led them out of slavery from Egypt, and he, and he gives them these commands, he's already delivered them, he's already saved them, he gives them a new identity. You will be to me a, my treasured possession. You will be a holy nation. You will be a kingdom of priests. They were to represent God in all his glory, in his character, to the nations around them, to the people. He drove the evil out to put his people in so that they could then eventually, over time, be a light to those very people that were being driven out so that the whole world would be brought into relationship and into covenant with God. But instead, they became like all the other nations around them. They took on other gods. They started making treaties with other nations instead of depending on God. They wanted a king just like the other nations. They started doing all of the things that the other nations did. We want to be like the nations. And even more so, through their actions, they profaned rather than glorified the name of the Lord. So God's response then, he says, was to disperse them. I, I brought you together and I put you in a place so that you can inhabit that place. I put my, his, his own spirit there. He didn't need a temple. He had mentioned that to David who wanted to build him a temple. Of course, Solomon, his son, is the one who ended up building the temple for him. He says, I don't need this, but I will put my presence there. This will be the symbol. Before that, it was in the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. As God moved, so did the tabernacle, so did the people. But he has them in this place. He's given them this inheritance, this land. And he says, I want you to care for this place and I want you to be holy even as I am holy. That's the, the, the most common phrase in the book of Leviticus. Be holy for I am holy. And when it doesn't happen, when it looks as if they're going to just become like everybody else around them, he disperses them. If you want to be like the nations, I'm going to send you in the nations. And here's the biggest reason when we get to verse 21... God says, I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they'd gone. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says, it is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm doing these things, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you've gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. He's repetitive. He's saying this. He is drilling this message down deeply into them. And he wants them to understand that his first 
concern is not for their well-being or even for the well-being of the nations. His first concern is for his very own holy name. We don't often think about this when we think of mission. We don't often think about this when we think of restoration. We don't often think about this when we think of our own personal need for transformation. How our lives can become a mess and how they need to be reoriented and realigned with God. And oftentimes we're thinking about our condition and what God needs to do to us and for us. And he is certainly the God who comes to save. He is the God who has acted on our behalf. But his action begins with his own holy name. My name has been profaned. So that when the name Yahweh was worn by the people, instead of it being an awe-inspiring name, a name that would make people want to call on the name of Yahweh himself, that would draw people to him so that they too would want to become one of the holy people of God. Instead, they were repulsed. There was no difference between the people of God and the people of the world, the nations around them. And he wanted his name to be holy. So he does it out of his own self-revelation and his own commitment to the kind of God he is. This is really tough for us uh, because he is saving us and saving his people in this passage. First and foremost, for the sake of his name. And we humans can be so self-centered rather than God-centered that this truth even hurts our feelings sometimes. We can even get a little bit like, what is he doing that for? so self-centered as if we are now going to become the judge judges of of God himself and yet the very thing that God wants to do is say my holiness and my character my love my grace my mercy my truth my justice my righteousness that is first and foremost that was on display when he created the world in its perfect good state It was on display in the people when he created them. And now it's been broken because of sin. And the very ones that he's chosen and redeemed and set apart, consecrated as his people, his treasured possession, his holy nation, his kingdom of priests, and they're not living in a way that draws glory to the name of Yahweh. And he's going to protect his name. But it goes beyond that. In the the next part of verse 23 in chapter 36, I think this is a very powerful statement for us today as well. He said, I'm going to show you the holiness of my great name. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes or another way to say it when I show myself holy through you before their eyes so first concern is his own holiness his his own name that's been profaned the second concern he says is for the nations I want the nations to see as I am at work to restore and to reform you my people 
I'm doing it so that these nations then will wake up to the magnificence of God himself. I want them to see my holiness, and they're going to see it, but they're going to see it through you. Now imagine Ezekiel thinking about this when he's imagining and, and he knows that his people are guilty and they stand dirty before God. They stand in their brokenness. They stand in their rebellion. They've refused. In fact, they've become like the people around them. They've got idols set up. High places are set up. The kings don't have anything to do. The, the, the good kings have died off and now it's just bad kings at the end of Judah's existence before they're carried off to Babylon. There aren't any good kings left to lead the people. The, the, the prophets and the priests haven't been shepherding the people. That's Ezekiel 34. The shepherds have disappeared. They stopped doing work of the shepherds. And the people are floundering. That's why later on in the Gospels, Jesus says he saw them and he had compassion in, on the people like sheep without a shepherd. And that's what Israel was. And they stand there and they are guilty before God. And he wants to reform them. And he wants to restore them so that the nations will hear what the nations need to hear. That Yahweh is holy. So that the nations will see what the nations need to see. That Yahweh is holy. It's how the world sees the holiness of God, the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. All the characteristics, all the attributes of God are seen mostly through the presence that he displays through his people. Think about that for you today. You are on display in your life every day, in your home, at work, at school, whatever place it is that you are, there is a display of some sort. There can't not be a display. There's a display. And what God's purpose is for his people is to display his character, to display his glory through us, through the way that we converse with people, the way that we think about them, the way that we treat them, the way that we receive them, the way that we respond when they injure us in the home, wherever it is is the holiness of God, the character of God, on display in us. Then he turns in verse 24 directly to his people. Listen to this beautiful passage. He says to Israel, I will take you out of the nations, the, the nations that he's scattered them into, Babylon, Assyria. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. This was a passage that later on in, in baptism uh, passages in the early church, they would point back to this, saying that the cleansing uh, doesn't just start at baptism. It's something that God's always been wanting to do, going back into the Old Testament with all the ritual washings. And this is one of those examples where he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and, and be careful to keep my laws. 
then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. And here in this passage, one of the things that really stands out is God says, I will do this. This is, the restoration is the work of God. God's concern now has turned not, not only for his holy name but, and for the nations around them, but for the people himself, themselves. I will do this. I will bring you back from the nations. I will gather you. I will sprinkle clean water. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone. I will put my spirit in you. I will be your God. I will save you from your uncleanness. I will call for the grain. I will increase the fruit. God is saying over and over, this is my work. You can't do it. I will do it for you. I will do what you cannot do for yourselves. The gospel is not just in the New Testament. The gospel is already appearing in the Old Testament. He's looking forward to a Messiah. He's looking forward to the presence of the Holy Spirit in his people. The Holy Spirit that will be poured out after the resurrection of Jesus. There is so much that's happening in this passage, this good news passage. But his point is that restoration is his work. And a part of the message of Ezekiel, a part of the message of Ezekiel is that we must trust God. God for it because sometimes when you are in the middle of your own mess, whether it's a personal mess, a family mess, a community mess, a world mess, a society mess, whatever the mess is, it takes great faith to believe that God can take me from here to there. Because when I'm here and I'm in the middle of the mess, it is difficult for me to imagine that I'll ever get out of it. Have you felt that that way before? Have you felt that way this week? That when you're in the middle of it, sometimes it's difficult to imagine that there can be anything different. I'm sure that the people felt the same way in exile or back in Judah. I mean, back in Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had left a puppet king. His name was Zedekiah. He was the uncle of Jehoiakim. He left him there. Zedekiah, after about uh, 10 years or so, not quite, decided that he had had enough of being the puppet. He was going to be in charge, so he rebels. He gets in trouble. Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem, and then he destroys the temple, and then everybody else is taken over to Babylon as well. Then we pick up the, the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Nehemiah, Ezra, Esther, those characters of the Bible that were in exile. And in the midst of all that exile, in the midst of that hardship, they're wondering, will we ever, will we ever be restored? For you, when all of your faith has rested in a building, because that's the symbol of the presence of God, and now the building is in ruins, you think your life is now in ruins. What will life be like for you? I trusted in this. I'm not even in the land anymore. That was what we called the promised land. And now we're in a foreign land. And we can feel like we're in a foreign land and we can feel like the presence of God is just completely gone. 
and yet there is a message of hope. Because do you know where Ezekiel was when he receives the message from God? He's in a foreign land. And that was important because Ezekiel needed to be reminded himself as he delivers a message to the exiles and all the hardship that they're facing, whether they're back in Jerusalem or they're right there in Babylon, he needs to know that the almighty presence of God is not just contained in a building and it's not just contained in one nation. He is the Lord of the earth. And he can speak to his people in the midst of the hardship just as he can in the midst of the plenty. He can speak to them when it looks like life is in ruins with the same power and commitment to his holiness and to the nations and to the people that he had when everything was pristine. He's that kind of God. And so what he says is, I'm going to make this happen. Verse 31, then, after he's made this reformation in his people, then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake. First and foremost, remember that, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed, be disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. Be ashamed, be disgraced. Um, we often don't like to hear those words. But these are inspired words of God because this is what God has in mind. If they can see the restoration project I have for them, because he's already talked about giving them a new heart and new life and restoring them. If they can see what I'm doing in them, if they can see my grace, giving them these things, restoring them to this life and to this abundance, in and not because they deserve it, but because I am going to be consistent with who I am. If they can see that, then that will lead to repentance. And that's what happens. Then verse 33. I want you to listen. I want you to listen now to this section. And, to, and I want you to hear how big the restoration process is. Listen to this. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. So as they've responded to the grace and they've repented and now they've come to the Lord, he says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, on the day I cleanse you from all your sins. So when I reform you from the inside out, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this is the land that was laid waste has become like the garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then, listen to this, then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. This is what the Lord does in his people and in his world and in the nations. The things that have been torn down, he rebuilds. This is the restoration project of God. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to Israel's plea. Now it's coming back to your sake, people. And I will do this for them. What? 
I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed festivals. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people, and they will know that I'm the Lord. God wants more for his people and more for the nations than merely spiritual blessing and awakening. He wants it, but that's not all that he wants. That's too small a thing for him. Think about it from this standpoint. God loves to forgive people. He loves to forgive us of our sins. But forgiveness is never the end in itself. There's always something more than just forgiveness. Think about the difference between forgiveness and grace. In forgiveness, he removes our sin from us. In grace, he fills us with the joy of salvation. He fills us with the Holy Spirit as we receive Christ through faith and baptism. He fills us with the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't just take away the sin. He gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us grace. And in this, this restoration project, this grand restoration project of God, he is committed to blessing the land and the cities and the crops and the flocks and the people. The reformation of his people leads to the restoration of the world. This is what Jesus, the Son of God, came to do. Ezekiel, in many ways, is looking forward to the future. He's looking forward to the Messiah. He talks about that in several of the places, just a few chapters back in 34. He looks forward to, the, to a great shepherd who's coming. He's a prince of David. Sound familiar? The Son of God comes into the world to save the world, to rescue it from darkness and brokenness and evil and sadness, and he comes in to restore the abundance of God to our world. This is why we can sing joy to the world. This is why we can celebrate, because the restoration project of God found its culmination in Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So that even before they received the Holy Spirit, in the beginning of Acts, Peter and the disciples come to Jesus before he goes back to be with the Father and they say, will you now restore Israel to its rightful place? Jesus, thinking it's not just Israel. This is for the world. And our global missions offering today is an opportunity for us to participate with God in the restoration of his world. The world that he's committed to and the world that he loves. It goes beyond the calling of individuals. Certainly, we want reformation as individuals. We want reformation in our families. We want reformation in our church. We want reformation in our world. But it's about more than just being reformed, forgiven, cleansed. The, the, the reformation, the transformation, the cleansing, and the renewal bring restoration to life and to the world. God gives opportunities to his people. Just as he did Israel, he gives opportunities to us because he wants to give opportunities to the world. He wants to give opportunities to the nations. In Luke chapter 2, 
When the angel appears to the shepherds in Bethlehem, he says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. For who? For Israel? For all the people. And when he tells them that they will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger, a very unlikely place and context, there was a whole company of the heavenly host that appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. His idea was never to simply put his blessing on Israel, and, and we know, brothers and sisters, that his, his idea is not to simply to bless the church for the church for the sake of the church. Because the church exists first and foremost for the glory of God. And the church exists to participate with God in the restoration of the world. We don't exist to feel comfortable, calm, collected together. Patting ourselves on the back only. We exist for something much grander, much bigger, much more beautiful than that. We exist for the restoration of the world. The incarnation of Jesus now takes on his people. A second incarnation, as it sometimes is called. As the Holy Spirit fills us so that we get into the world. In Mexico, Nicaragua, and Uganda, we are joining God's restoration project. It's a comprehensive project. Because it involves the total human experience. Just as Ezekiel is promising, or God is promising through Ezekiel to his people, I'm going to restore your cities, I'm going to restore your land, I'm going to restore your crops, I'm going to restore your flocks, I'm going to make it abundant. This is what he's doing in these places. In Mexico, Nicaragua, Uganda, it's the whole human experience. It's spiritual, it's emotional, it's mental, it's physical, it's psychological, it's material, it's environmental, it's relational, it's communal, it's holistic. Don't get carried away thinking that the gospel is only about the salvation of human souls for a future heaven. It is about the restoration of the world, good breaking into evil, light breaking into darkness, starting now as he restores the world. It takes faith to believe God for restoration. And when we find ourselves in exile, whether it's self-induced hardship or unsolicited suffering, it takes faith in the God of restoration to see a way into his glory and our good and the good of the world. When we see the brokenness of the world, it takes faith to join God's restoration. It takes faith to join a project to rebuild brokenness in our own city and in the world. It takes faith to heal and to replenish. Ezekiel could only look forward to a Messiah who was coming. We look back and see that the Messiah has come and we look forward in great faith and confidence that he will come again to finish this restoration project of the world once and for all. And it's part of the hope that we have in this season. It's part of what we celebrate as the people of God. Would you stand with me, please? I'll invite our prayer teams to take their places, and as we sing together,
I want to encourage you to be a part of what God is up to in our global missions works. But I'll ask you, what would he like to be up to in your own life? What reform does he need to bring to you? Not simply for your sake, but for the sake of those around you. The changes he'd like to make in you so that he can make changes in others. And where can he use us? This is not just a word to individuals. This is a word to a community. How might he use us to continue to be a holy nation and a kingdom of peace, of a kingdom of priests to this community? Let's think about that and let's respond as we sing together.